I started college at Eastern Kentucky University as a pre-law law enforcement major. I hadn't decided if I was going to be a state trooper or law. And if I did law, I decided on criminal courtroom. Um, as a part of that education, as you know, going to a public university, the university studies or general studies, I don't remember what it was called at that time, but I had to take a lot of courses that were, of course, outside of the context of my major. Um, I chose the appreciation, theater appreciation course. I had done theater once as a senior in high school because they made me. Um, I was a jock in high school and never really was exposed to theater in terms of community theater or even theater in school. Um, I'm from Louisville. I've never been to Actors Theater because when I was living there, it just wasn't anything that I did or cared about. So I was forced into a show in high school. Um, I say forced, but the theater teacher said, I need a jock for this. Will you do it? And I said, sure. So I did that, went to college. And two weeks into the semester, uh, we started our lab work. And I chose the scene shop. And <laughs> this is not the R-rated part. This is the <laughs> G part. I'll get to the R-rated part. I went to the shop and loved it. Spent a lot of time there in two to weeks two and four of the semester. You know, I spent a lot of time in the scene shop and really enjoyed it and really very quickly keyed into lighting as something that I really, really enjoyed. And um, I went in one day to the shop and my boss at the time, my mentor, he still is one of my mentors, said, I need you to take this gel over to the sink and I need you to wash it. Don't let anything happen to it because we have one sheet and I need this color. So I was like, oh, okay. So I took the piece of gel he gave me over to the sink and turned the water on and ran the gel under the water and it instantly dissolved because it was old school, real gelatin. And it's called, lighting gel is called gel because it was rolled gelatin, which is, of course, water-soluble. And so I ran it under there, and it just dissolved and ran down the sink drain. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to, one, fail, and two, get killed for this. And then I turned around and looked, and there were a bunch of people standing around on the upper area of the shop watching me, just laughing. <laughs> that was apparently a, an introduction to uh -huh. people that they liked and they thought was fun. And so my first thing was, okay, I like this. I can hang out with these people because they do crazy stuff like I would do to other people. Um, and I was kind of in then. Well, a couple weeks after that, I'm still in the theater appreciation class, right? I mean, I'm learning what tools are and how to build scenery and all, but really I'm still, I'm still a law major, law enforcement major. They put a call out in our theater appreciation course. You can get extra credit if you go to the large theater on campus. And on this day, you can crew the show that's coming in. 
And I thought, okay, I'll take extra credit, take all the extra credit that I can get, right? So I showed up at the designated time. It turns out that it was a dance company who was there to perform, which I liked because it's a lot of lighting. So I was intrigued by that part of it. But I wasn't on the lighting crew. They put me on the backstage crew. So I was like, oh, okay, I've never done that before. Um, this was too soon into the semester for us to have had a show to participate in in the theater of preach class. We were still just building. So I've not, not been on that on the floor before backstage, right? So didn't really know what to do, and I made that very clear to the stage manager. Um, and the stage manager looked at me and said, go stand in the corner over there. There's a towel, there's a hairdryer. When the dancers come off, they'll tell you, they'll give you, they'll tell you exactly what you're supposed to do. It's like, okay, fine. So they do their warm-ups and run a couple pieces and the show's going to start. So it gets quiet backstage, as you know, happens, right? Dark, yeah. work light only kind of thing. Um, so the concert starts, and I'm back watching, and I'm like, oh, this is pretty cool. Because, again, I am not... I am not a theater person at that point, right? And certainly not a dance person at that point in time. I was 18, 19 years old and a jock. And so the concert starts, the first piece ends, dancer runs off the stage, gets to the corner, lights a cigarette, right? Which a lot of dancers smoke to yeah. stay thin or whatever. She lit up a cigarette. And she looked at me and she said, Are we going to do this or not? And I said, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> and she said, oh, okay. So she put her cigarette down somewhere. And all of a sudden, in seven seconds, she's naked. And she says, that's what the towel and the blow dryer is for. I can't get into my next costume if I'm sweaty. And so she's standing there with her arms out. And I'm blow drying, and she's towel drying, or I'm towel drying, and then she would blow dry. Had the same dancer pretty much all night. And I thought to myself, wow, if this is what theater is like, I'm in, right? <laughs> so a week later, I called my parents, and I said, I'm thinking of changing my major. And um, My dad, who wanted to be an opera singer and probably could have been, was like, well, Follow your dream, dude, but you need to know you're moving from a six-figure salary to not <laughs> a six-figure income, right? And uh, I said, okay, well, so I changed my major, and the rest, as they say, is history, right? But just so everybody knows who's listening, that experience never happened to me again in the theater. It was uh, a one-and-done situation, as they say, and so I feel, I feel that I moved into my current field under some sort of false pretense, but I've been doing it for a long time, so I don't feel like changing now. <laughs> so what drew you specifically to lighting? <sighs> this is going to be an insight into my personality. Um, what, drew me in, what, what drew me to lighting was the color. What kept me in lighting was the control. Because as an actor, if you're on stage and you're doing the Hamlet to be or not to be speech and you're standing there and you're emoting and you're physical and you're doing all the things you want to do 
and I hit a button and all of a sudden the light's not on you, it's over there, guess where everybody looks? <laughs> over there. And I thought to myself, directors have the control they need, right? But lighting designers have the opportunity to even more control the space than as a set designer or a costume designer because lighting is fluid. Lighting is always changing. I'm a very natural designer, so I base everything pretty much on what I see around me and, and nature. And so lighting is never the same. You look at a tree now and you look at it 10 seconds from now, it's different. So my lighting is very fluid. It moves a lot. And I liked the idea that I could assist a director and an actor by doing everything I could possibly do to influence their environment. Um, the only one that I think really comes close is costume because, of course, an actor's in that, right? And mm -hmm. so you can't get any closer to an actor than that, than, than being their clothes. Um, but to navigate and change the environment that an actor or actors are going to move through consistently over two and a half, three hours, to me, was an intriguing proposition. And that's really what drew me to lighting. Okay. I like scene design because I love research. And so the opportunity to do all kinds of research to get a design where you need it to be for what it needs to be, I'm intrigued by that. I enjoy that a lot too. But I also enjoy being able to do research by walking outside at night and looking and go, oh, that's lavender, that's blue, that's green. Why is that green? And then replicating that on stage as opposed to coming to a place not unlike a library where we are and spending hours and hours and hours digging through books and shelves. So, I was about to say, did you ever get drawn to dramaturgy? Only in so much as it helps me understand the play. <laughs> now, one of your other people that you've had at this chair, Lisa Graham, <laughs> would tell you that, and she may be right a little bit, designers will read the front of the play, they'll look at the sketch in the back, and maybe the stuff in the middle of the play script doesn't matter quite as much. Um, that's doable sometimes, but most of the time you really have to dig in. Um, and I would dig in, but dramaturgy to me was a tool to use as a designer. Um, it actually didn't reach a lot of flavor until I was much older. It became more of a thing in the more recent history. Um, a lot of the times directors, for the longest time, directors were the dramaturgs. They knew the script better than anybody. Mm -hmm. and the culture and the history and the, and the list goes on, right? Um, so I used anything I knew about dramaturgy, I learned because I needed to know it as a designer. Beyond that, as a, as a potential field for me to pursue in theater, no. I never, I never pursued that. Mm -hmm. um. You know, we, we talked about this, and if you don't feel comfortable answering, no problem. I can cut around it, or you just don't have to answer. But I'm personally curious, how does having a father in performance, how did that affect your life in performance in the world of entertainment and theater and such? Okay. Um, sort of dark subject matter, but I don't mind going down this road. Okay. Um, my father never was in performance other than being very active in a church choir where I grew up. He was a business person who worked for Reynolds, 
um, and Reynolds Reynolds Rap was that company, R.J. Reynolds, in Louisville. Um, when he was 15, he had an opportunity to go and audition for a major opera company. And his father had recently left the family. Actually, I found out very recently that he had divorced my mom from Mexico. And she didn't know for two months. They didn't know where he was for two months. And because he divorced my, my grandmother from Mexico, he didn't know anything. No child support, no alimony, no nothing, right? The papers were just delivered to the house through the post, uh, post mail. So my, my dad, who was 15, and his three older sisters, they immediately had to go to work, right? Because there was no income except for the small amount of money my grandmother made as someone who worked in a retail store. And so when that opportunity came up for my dad, their family circumstances at that point in time were not, he couldn't do it. He couldn't leave. I mean, he could have, but it would have been a move like his dad just made, and he was like, I'm not going there. So he didn't do it. Um, that was in the 1940s, I guess. Well, time goes by. He gets married. He has me. He has my younger brother. Um, he gets very unhappy with where he works. Doesn't feel like he's being treated well, whatever. Calls that out. And, of course, when you do that, you lose your job. So he left that job, took on another job, and then probably two and a half, three years after that, he committed suicide. And I'll never forget what he said to me when I said I wanted to move from law enforcement to doing theater, because I think this was a very pertinent statement for what happened with the rest of his life. He said to me, you're going to lose money. You're going from six figures a year to less than that, a lot less than that probably. And the more important thing is you have to do what makes you happy. And he said that many, many times in that phone call that I had with my parents. And so when I look back on it now, and he died in 80, 83 or 84. So when I look back on it now, I think, aha, you know, that's a light bulb moment. And the, the psychiatrist who was working with my father before he killed himself said that he kept talking about things that he wanted to do and he never got to do. And it really, really made him unhappy. Uh, obviously unhappy enough to kill himself. I don't think anybody ever kills themselves over one event. I think that that's a culmination of lots of things. But um, I think that his statement to me was a direct reflection of what happened in his life and, and the path that he was forced to choose. And he didn't want to see that happen to me so when I look back on it I think hmm, okay you know I'm, maybe part of this I'm doing for him right yeah. so uh, who knows but yeah he, he had an interesting path in his life and um, and and I guess now looking back on it I didn't see this at the time of course but at the time you're not looking for it but I guess probably somewhat unhappy not with not with my mom or with the family or anything like that. He was always the life of the party and had a lot of friends, really good friends. But I just think he never got to do what he really wanted to do. You know, not to trivialize or give a medal to either you or me for it, but it's a hard choice for it's a hard choice for like an 18-year-old to have to decide or 18 to 20 
to decide whether or not to do something that's going to be overtly lucrative versus something that might make you happy. I mean, you're the reason I do theater. I was just going to try to become a psychologist because I didn't think I could do theater. I didn't think I'd be good enough at it. I didn't think, I didn't really see any future in it. So that's a, you're having to look really far into the future and kind of make a gamble uh, to an extent, um, which I mean, you can major in something different in college and then pursue something like that after still, but you know, it's still a big choice. And especially, you know, it's difficult if your parents aren't exactly aligned with it. I was fortunate enough that both my parents were very much like, they weren't theater people. I mean, my mom was involved with like cheerleading and some other kind of performative things like that. But for the most part, they were just like, we're just glad, you know, you're doing something that makes you happy. So uh, again, not to trivialize or anything, but I think it's, it's a difficult decision to make. It is. And I come from almost the same background that you did. My parents had other than my dad singing, there was nothing performance-oriented about anything my family did. Um, it, long way down the family tree, nothing, right? Still not. Um, so, yes, you do sort of put your faith in a crystal ball that's very, very, very cloudy. Um, but I've told my children, my two kids, one's 30 and one's 23, that I've given them that same advice. You know, it you can't really look at the dollar figures because the dollar figures are not what are, that's not what's going to make you happy in the long run. Um, you can live better maybe if you have more money, but I don't know that you live happier. So I've drained it into their head, mm-hmm. pounded it in, do what makes you happy. Yeah. And we'll support, we'll support whatever that is. Well, I mean, it's also just, you can, I think you can get a lot more done even when something is very difficult if you are passionate about it. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, obviously theater and acting in general and things of that nature are kind of hard to break into, but if you have like a certain amount of passion and obviously at the end of the day a certain amount of talent, then there's stuff you can do with that, I there think. Um, and it's, it reminds me of the, I don't, I'm not sure who, this, who said this, but I know the quote and I think about it a lot kind of whenever I start to kind of doubt what I do or doubt continuing with it because it does happen more often so now now that I'm kind of at the precipice of graduation but you know a lot of men live lives of quiet desperation and that's you know not something I want to do and I think both of my parents they kind of ended up doing things they're okay with um and they're you know like my dad's a salesman and a lot of like my mom's family they were all like tobacco auctioneers so a lot of like sales and, and kind of like a performative um trait I guess I got from them from that but um, I mean I didn't really realize I wanted to do I mean I even liked theater until high school Um, I was I wouldn't say I was a jock I was a misplaced jock I did football my freshman year because my friends did it which high school football is a kind of a lifestyle so I did make the wrong choice there but I ended up doing a theater class I did a play I just really enjoyed um, how it made me feel and I really enjoyed the aspect of telling a story and the, the sensation that I'm, I'm making people forget about things, you know? It's like whenever I'm on stage and there's a group of people in front of me, they get to just sit there and relax, and that makes me feel good because I have a really, I guess I get it from my mom, I have a very powerful sense of hospitality, and so that ties into like why I enjoy performance so much because I enjoy making people feel 
um, at ease, I guess, or make them feel uh, emotions in general. But um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's definitely a scary thing to do, but I think there's ways to, you know, there's ways to balance these things. And, you know, none of this is as easy as I'm saying it is, obviously, but uh, I guess these saying these things makes me feel better about it. Like mm -hmm. me personally, I think Stuff. after college, I might try to sell cars, but also pursue theater and stuff. But uh, the idea just kind of in the last like two, three months, I was like, you know, I need to figure out something to do while I'm pursuing performance and theater in general, which I don't necessarily have to be an actor. I just want to be involved in the space. I love theater. I love all the facets of it. So, I mean, I wouldn't mind working in a shop or doing administration or anything like that. I just want to be involved in the space. But um, I definitely want to find something, you know, to do to keep me afloat while I pursue that. And like I said, I've got a lot of salesmen in my family. So that's kind of, I think, where I'm looking towards. But um, to go back a little bit, speaking of administration, like I was saying, what, what was the move and what was the impetus of that move going from designer to administration? It was nondescript, <laughs> um, a bit forced. Um, I was teaching at the second institution I was at, which is out in the Hampton Roads area in Virginia on the coast area. And the person who was in charge of theater at that time was well-respected but not incredibly well-liked. And unfortunately for him, he had a mild heart attack and took him out for a semester. He was, I mean, he was fine, but he was like, I'm not going to work for a semester as well. He should not have. And in somebody's wisdom, they found the opportunity to sort of slide me into that job to cover for him, which was fine. And the gentleman and I talked about it. It was all cool, right? What neither one of us found out about until after the fact was that when the gentleman came back, they didn't reinstate him. They kept me in because they liked me better. I was easier to get along with, really is the only reason. Um, and that was unfortunate because what it did was it drove a huge spike, as you can imagine, between myself and the other gentleman who was involved in this because they didn't tell either one of us until mm -hmm. he was back. And he asked for the placard of the director of theater to go back on his door, and they said, oh, no, it's going to stay on his door. That's how he found out. That's how I found out. That's aggressive. Uh, aggressive, unprofessional. I have a lot of adjectives that I can throw out there with it. Very dramatic, too. Uh, yeah, and, and unfortunately, a lot of things happened at that university that way. Um, the, the upside to all of that turmoil and craziness was that I found... I found that I liked administration. Um, it's not as artistic, obviously. I'm not an accountant, so it's not a money thing. It's not a figure thing. I'm not a mathematician. That doesn't give me any thrill at all. Um, but I'm like you when you said, I just want to be in the space. For me, being an administrator means that I'm in the space. I'm in the space of the decision-making. I'm in the space of the discussions. I'm in the space of being in the know, which then gives me the opportunity to either rail against it or 
to assist and make everything better for the faculty and the staff and the students, which has always been my goal. Um, I don't always get there the way people want me to get there, but that's always been my goal. And so I like administrative work because it keeps me in touch with um, the decision-making process. When and if I choose to go back to the faculty here and not be an administrator anymore, the most difficult thing for me to, to deal with is going to be the fact that I'm not in the know <laughs> and um, I don't know the information that's being shared or how that information is being shared. Uh, faculty are in the horrible position of only being told the end result of discussions and conversations. They don't get the long overarching track record and the long overarching discussions. Faculty, staff, and students just get the end results of those. And and they live by it, right? Um, which is not really fair. And which that's why we have Faculty Senate. That's why we have the Women's Faculty Caucus. That's why we have the groups on campus who allow faculty to have more input and be more involved, and, and that's good. Um, but I don't know. I don't know if it's selfishness because I want to be in the know so bad or if it's a humanitarian thing. I like to think that's what it is because if I'm in the know, it's easier to lead. It's easier to make decisions about where are we going to go? What are we going to do? How are we going to get there? If this is the decision the administration has made, whether I like it or not, there's a whole big group of people that I've got to get there. And how are we going to do that? Um, I would much rather be at the front of that procession than at the rear. Uh, I don't have to be in the front. That's not important to me. Uh, our dean's office is pretty democratic, as well as the theater office was when I was chair over there. We made a lot of decisions together, and we still do that. I don't like to mandate decisions. That's, in my mind, most of the time, totally inappropriate. Um, but... We talk about everything. We discuss everything. I don't usually make a decision unless I'm forced to until my assistant dean and my assistant to the dean and probably my admin and my budget manager have been pulled into all that loop, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I want to know what's going on at that level. I don't want to know at the very end of all of those discussions. I don't want to deal with it without knowing how that decision was made. So I guess maybe that is a little selfish too. But, um, yeah, that's why I like administrative work. I was going to say, it sounds like you can almost make a, a parallel between your work as a lighting designer in that in being in an administration in that you do kind of, to an extent, get to choose where to send the light to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I imagine, you know, that must be enjoyable it's in, in its own way. It is. I mean, the one, one of the nicest things that I get to do every day is to receive an amazing number of emails, as you can probably imagine. But when I get the one or two that says, we've really got this problem, and this is what we need to do to solve the problem, um, the day's worth it when myself and my team can figure out how to solve that problem. Same thing with lighting. I mean, it, it is truly the same sort of thing. Um, whether it's a technical issue with lighting, like why doesn't that one work? versus a conceptual thing where the director's saying, well, we need to do this, but to get to where they need to be, I know we have to do X, Y, and Z, right, as the LD. So 
okay, fine, how are we going to make this work? How's this all going to gel together? Um, so, you know, it's, it sounds all puzzle-esque, but I hate doing puzzles. Um, so it doesn't carry through to the physicality of standing over a table trying to put a puzzle together. But I think the chain of events that leads to the outcome that hopefully is a good one, I like that. Um, and, I, you know, I, I, I've always told people that as a, as a leader, I always will default to the humanitarian side of everything, right? Sometimes that's good and sometimes it's not. Um, but uh, I, I like to think that it's more of a need for people to feel good in their own space, whether it's a theater or a classroom or their office or wherever it is. And, you know, if my office can help them do that, then that's what we'll do. Now, changing the subject a little bit, um, I know you have a pretty, which most people do, but you have a pretty passionate and personal relationship with music. Have you ever done lighting design for concerts? Uh, not big ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, the person who followed me into the theater office, Brent, has done much more lighting design work for concerts than, than I have. Um, he was actually a roadie for a long time. Um, so he's got a lot of history with that. He's the one you want to answer in that question. <laughs> um, that was actually one of my plans. That was one of my goals when I was in college and I was moving towards the end and I had an option. I had an option. I knew I could get into grad school at the University of Cincinnati because that's where my mentor went and he, he helped me get in. It's ultimately what I ended up doing. The other option was um, concert lighting. I'm glad that didn't really work out because in terms of being at a concert, I would much rather be the musician than the lighting designer. I chose not to be a musician because I didn't want, I didn't want the lifestyle. I didn't want to be on the road all the time. I didn't want to, so, you know, I play guitar as a, as a thing that I do because I like it. I've played since I was 13. Um, but I chose consciously not to do it as a profession. I'm afraid if I was an LD for concerts all the time, <laughs> I would just not be paying attention to what I needed to do as a lighting designer because I'd be watching and wondering what was going on on stage and why, and, oh, that guitar player missed that note, you know, that kind of stuff, right? You can't do that as a lighting designer. You're, you're ultimately playing a piano trying to keep up with what they're doing on stage, right? So, I, But I did... I did have an option to pursue that. Um, I actually made my mentor mad towards the end of my career because he needed me to LD a show at the school and I couldn't do it because I had an appointment to meet an LD at a concert to, to talk about that. Um, so I was, pretty, I was pretty far down that road before I decided not to go that direction. Um, I think I know where you're asked why you're asking me this question. I had an interesting thing happen when I was interviewing with that lighting designer. It was for a very prominent band in the 80s and 90s, um, led by two female artists. One's a singer, one's a guitar player. Um, I'm not going to divulge more information than that. Um, but after the show, during the show, I was at the board watching what was going on, right? I wasn't really paying attention to the group. I was watching this person work. Um, And then afterwards, I watched them tear down, which is quite an experience. If you've never been able to see a concert breakdown, it's an amazing thing to watch. And then after that, we were at the bus. He said, let's go and let's talk some more at the bus. 
couldn't stay long because they weren't staying in town they were leaving which is standard operating procedure um, and we were sitting there talking and uh, the guitar player in this group I thought I was on the crew bus but the guitar player in this group actually came out of the shower wearing nothing but a towel <laughs> and at the time was one of my huge music crushes and so I will I will always I'll always have that moment as a potential concert lighting designer which um, was fun and interesting and I had to play it off if I got if I paid any attention at all to that person the lighting designer could have very easily thought oh well that's the reason why this guy's really in here talking to me right he doesn't really care about what I do so I just I gave a glancing wave and that was it right because I was really there to talk to this person um that lighting designer actually ended up moving and became van halen's ld for most of the career when roth was there the first time so i learned a lot in a night from sitting and talking and watching what this person did and ultimately what i learned was i didn't want that lifestyle either for the same reason I didn't want to be a musician and get serious enough to where you were on the road and doing all those kinds of things. Because I kind of did that. I dropped out of college twice to do that. And there's a reason why I went back to college. I decided that the LD job was going to be the same kind of thing, right? Um, and I really didn't I really didn't want to do that. And so I had already been accepted to Cincinnati. And I was just like, mm. I, th- I think as much as I like working in a college atmosphere I think I just really want to focus on doing this as an educator um, the stability of the place you live not being on the road all the time but being on the road sometimes with shows that are touring that's fun right but I didn't want to do that all the time so yeah the concert thing was something that I really truly thought about and probably would have enjoyed but I don't think I would have liked the lifestyle it was an interesting opportunity on a tour bus, however, um, <laughs> but that was a long time ago. Well, I mean, that's your relationship to music as a potential designer. What was your relationship to it as an audience member? Um, I'm assuming you probably saw a bunch of concerts. I've only seen like four of my parents between them. I've seen like hundreds. I've seen hundreds. Yeah. Um, Do you have any favorites? Yeah, Led Zeppelin in Louisville in 77, 76 had to be one of my favorites. Um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Led Zeppelin Greatest Hits fan. I'm not a deep-cut Zepp guy. Um, but Jimmy Page was a remarkable studio guitar player before he got with the Yardbirds or Zepp, started Zeppelin. And his, his talent and his production qualities are really good, really high. And so I, I was into Zeppelin because Paige is a good player and I like the way he produced their music. So actually getting to see them, um, that was huge for me. and still is, actually. Um, other concerts that I would rank as really high, I've seen Skinner lots of times with the original lineup and otherwise. Um, they're always a good show. Uh, I really liked, and this is so weird because this is the opposite end of the spectrum, but I got to see Crosby, Stills, and Nash one mm. time at Rupp Arena in Lexington. And you talk about control. 
those three guys on the stage alone in Rupp Arena, which, as you know, is huge, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. David Crosby will walk up to the front of the stage, put his finger across his lips in the shh position, and there would be literally no noise in Rupp Arena while they played some of their softer acoustic music. I mean, it, that was pretty much an amazing experience. Again, I'm a Crosby, Stills, Nash, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young greatest hits guy. I'm not a deep cut person, but um, I wanted to see them before they stopped. Um, I've seen, oh, I've seen everybody. I mean, the <laughs> my list. parents are going to see the Stones in a few months. I did not. I saw the Stones in. Again, I saw them in Louisville. It was in the '80s, um, and I was contemplating seeing the Stones until Charlie Watts passed away. And um, their their rhythm section, Charlie Watts on drums and mm-hmm. Keith Richards is probably the best rhythm guitar player ever on the planet. Those two in sync, you can't beat that. And somebody can come on stage and go through the motions of Charlie Watts as the Stones drummer, but it's not going to be the same. And yeah. so I, I did not get a ticket for that. I looked at him heavily, but I didn't. After he passed away, I was like, eh, I'm not going to go. I am supposed to see Clapton in a couple weeks in Nashville. Ooh. I've never seen him, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, but I've, I've seen... I, I couldn't even tell you. I couldn't even tell you. Uh, I'm a member of the Kiss Army. And oh, I have yeah, a, my dad too. I have a 1976 Kiss Army belt buckle that I have in a safe at home. Um, I have all kinds of paraphernalia, thousands of ticket stubs that you know I have left over, and original T-shirts from a lot of the tours in the 70s and early 80s that that my mom kept, thankfully, and gave them to me. Um, so a lot of paraphernalia I have you're too young to know this but there was a time and they might still do it I don't know that if you bought a music poster for your wall for your room it wasn't like 24 by 36 it was like 4 feet by 3 feet I mean these things were huge and they covered my walls in my room and I have originals of those from Boston and Zeppelin and who else? Skinnerd. Um, one from Hendrix, but I never. Hendrix died before I was old enough to care. But a brilliant guitar player. Um, oh yeah. So I have a lot of those. So I have a lot of paraphernalia that has nothing to do with what I do for my living or my life. But well, it's so fun. You, you do what you do for a living to engage in what you're. Enjoying. Yeah, what you're passionate about, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean that's kind of one of the things my parents do for fun all the time is they always go see concerts. My parent, my mom goes to see like, she goes to see the dead at least like once a year. Yeah. Um, they're seeing Rolling Stones this year. And then do you know what Romp is? Have you ever heard of Romp? No. It's like a music festival that happens just outside Owensboro and it's bluegrass. But I think like one of the first years they had it, like um, Steve Martin came and played. Mm-hmm. I think he plays banjo. He's a huge banjo player. Yes, he came and played banjo, and then this year they've got Bruce Hornsby. Oh, very cool. Yeah, exactly. I met Horn. I know his mom. You know Bruce Hornsby's mom? I don't know her, um, but I met her several times at the school where I was before I came here, um, where I was told I was going to be an administrator. Um, I got a phone call one day, 
and this person on the other end was a very nice woman and said she had a lot of stuff that she'd like to give to the theater department and I was like great you know we'll make arrangements you know what do we need to do and she hedged for a minute and she said how about I just make arrangements to get it to you instead of you picking it up and some of it wasn't just clothes some of it was bigger stuff and we were like well we can get a university vehicle and come down there and pick up stuff we've got enclosed trucks we can we can do it and she finally fessed up she said well I'm afraid if I do that Bruce will be mad because there will be quite a few people in the area then who are students who knows where we live and I said okay why is Bruce going to be mad? Because I didn't know who this was, right? And she said, well, my last name is Hornsby. And the the album that has Jacob's Ladder and all those real famous, you know, that had just broke. He was huge at that time. Mm-hmm. And so I, I laughed. I said, well, Miss Hornsby, I can understand why. So you just tell me when you want to be here. And we'll we'll make sure that, you know, we're, we have lots of people to help unload whatever you bring us. So, yeah, that's how I know her. And then I met her when she dropped the stuff off. But she was she's a sweetheart. I don't know if she's still alive. She may not be as long time ago. But, um, yeah, she was very sweet. And she was doing everything she could to protect her kid, which I thought was great. It was funny. It's like it reminds me that have you seen, I think it's a pretty famous picture. It's like all the members of Kiss with their moms. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very famous picture. Yeah. I always thought it was kind of funny about, um, I think this is Gene Simmons, but how Gene Simmons basically wasn't that wild as far as, you know, normally rock stars go. Like, he would go backstage and just start, he would get on, my dad told me, I think he would get on a computer and just do like accounting, essentially. He was very kind of nose to the ground kind of guy. That's one thing I learned being around musicians as much as I have been. The ones who are crazy and who are indulging in things they don't need to be indulging in, right? And I'm not talking as a moral person here. I'm talking about as just detrimental to their health. Um, There's usually an underlying reason for that. The ones who are huge, famous, and on it, all the time very rarely indulge in any kind of drinking or drugs or anything like that certainly not prior to a show Um, they've hit some sort of bottom or some sort of obstacle for a professional musician to get to that point and that obstacle could just be addiction right and i'm not downplaying any of that but there are lots and lots and lots and lots of very famous musicians who have this reputation as being crazy and doing all these horrible things and um, to themselves. And a lot of it is PR, a lot of it's marketing, a lot of it's imagery, and not all of it's true. Most mm. of it, most of it's really not. Um, so it's that's one thing I did learn going to a lot of concerts. The other thing I learned about going to a concert is if you act like you know what you're doing, nobody questions anything. So if you go to a board and you start talking to the operators that are in the little square in the back of the auditorium or the stadium that, hey, what's going on? What kind of system are you using? You start talking that stuff, you're in. (laughs) They like you because nobody pays any attention to them. They're just in the way, right, from the people who can't see behind them. Yeah. So when you make that connection with those people, you can get in anywhere and do a lot. 
And so I've met a lot of very famous musicians simply because I don't mind walking up to a sound person or a lighting person and say, what kind of system are you running? Uh, you know, and, and engaging them in a real conversation. And I do it because I like that stuff. I geek out on that stuff, right? I don't do it as a way to meet musicians. Honestly, most of the time I care less about them. But you do get backstage. You do get to talk to people. You do meet people. Um, and backstage at most concert is really boring. <laughs> it's really boring. The doors are shut because they don't want to be bothered in their dressing rooms. They're doing whatever they need to do to get ready, right? So the doors are shut. It's not usually like party time. Um, not for the ones that are really good. I mean, we've all heard the stories about early days of Van Halen and Guns N' Roses and people like that. Well, a lot of that happens because they're in an altered state of consciousness. Um, and that usually doesn't last very long because you either, you, either, you either get through that or you die, right? I mean, yeah. those are your options most of the time for the type of stuff that have they have going on um some of them have died and gotten through it <laughs> like, and then you have people like ozzy osbourne who have just hung on for so long yeah but ozzy's not not since the 80s has he been crazy guy yeah i mean he's crazy guy but mm -hmm. not not out of his mind because of drugs or alcohol he's been clean for a long time mm -hmm. um, people don't get credit for that we want to remember the fun stories, not the, not the Aussie sitting at home, you know, talking to Jack and doing a fun TV show about Ghost, right? Yeah. I was about to say he kind of successfully rebranded himself almost as a family man. He you did. Know? Well, he is a family man. He is a family too. man. And actually, since he's been clean, he always has been. Um, it just took Sharon a while to get him there, I think. Yeah. So, I am not on a first-name basis with Ozzy and Sherry Osbourne, just to tell you right now. <laughs> I was actually about to ask. So, <laughs> no. I mean, musicians, <laughs> any interesting ones stand out besides just, you know, whoever just walking by? Um, yeah. And you don't, I mean, I know you refrained from talking about the 80s band earlier, so if you don't want to... No, I, I can tell you that... One of the nicest people I ever met, there were two really nice people that I met, both from the same group. Um, one of the nicest persons that I ever met was Eddie Van Halen. And the other one was Michael Anthony, their bass player. Um, we were at a concert, some my, a couple of my friends, and we learned through the crew where they were. So after the concert was over, we went downtown to the Galt House. I think it was the Galt House in Louisville where they were staying. And sure enough, we were there for a little while and uh, the limos came in and um, David Lee Roth got out of his limo and he had like 14 girls with him and lots of alcohol. And he went zooming past and he nodded, he was polite. And then he went up to the hotel. Alex Van Halen drove up, got out of his limo, and he was by himself, and he was very, you can kind of tell by looking at him, he's very in his head a lot. Um, and he, again, pleasant, went on, didn't really engage. Michael Anthony's limo came in next, and he got out, and he wanted to chat. I mean, he just wanted to talk. And so... And we weren't women, right? 
which is what you would expect, right? It would gravitate. It was just three guys. We were just down there hanging out. And he came over and he talked for a long time. And then Eddie's limo came and he got out. He has a guitar with him and a bottle of Jack Daniels in the other hand. And he walked up and set his drink down and, strangely enough, laid his guitar on the ground, which I thought, this is the most famous guitar on the planet right now, and you just laid it on the floor. (laughs) And he came over and started talking. And uh, I'll never forget this. I went to shake his hand, and he looked at me, and he said, dude, I would love to, but I can't. I said, my insurance company won't allow me to do that. So his hands were insured for a lot of money, I'm sure. Um, and they stood and talked to us for a long, long time and were very, very nice. Um, they liked talking to us because we wanted to talk shop. We weren't fans. You know, we were talking about their music. And so they talked to us for a long time. The other person that I, I have enjoyed talking to is not a musician, but was the comedian Eddie Azard. Uh, we saw him in Memphis, and after the show, there were a lot of people gathered in the parking lot behind the theater, and, and we walked up and we were like, what's going on? And said, somebody said that he was going to come out and just talk to some people and just answer some questions, which if you know anything about him, that's who he is. Um, and he came out. He was. We probably were in that parking lot with him for 45 minutes, just... And he was just chatty, and he was answering questions. And these weren't questions about his life. These were questions about British politics, about the state of the planet, which he's really into. Um, these were intelligent questions being answered by an extremely intelligent man. You, you can't be as good of a comedian as he is and not be really, really smart. Mm-hmm. And so that was, that was a great experience, too. Um, I'm trying to think if there were any others that really stood out. I've met and talked to a lot of people just because of placement, fortunate mm-hmm. placement, right? Um, again, at Eastern Kentucky mm-hmm. University, I was a I was a senior, and there was a concert coming in to that big theater. This was a music concert, and Pure Prairie League was coming, which at the time they had a single out. It was called Amy, and everybody knew the song Amy. Um, early 80s I think is that the Amy what, what you, you gonna do yeah yes. what you gonna do that's yeah. them and so we got a call they need a load in so we were like okay fine so this was by this time I wasn't doing it for extra credit it was paid so because we knew what we were doing right it was the theater crew so we got over there <clears throat> it was snowing which was weird and the load in was supposed to be at 8 in the morning they didn't get to the theater until 3 because of the weather and the show was at 8 and so it was all hands on deck. Let's get stuff going. And the band was there. They were there doing setup. And I mean like lighting setup, right? They weren't just showing up for sound check. They were loading us in. And I'll never forget this. I was sitting on the floor and I was stringing border strip lights together. Just plugging in a bunch of border strips, one after the other, one after the other. And I was sitting next to, an, to, to a musician who was doing it. And we just started chatting. And he was, and I, I told him, I said, I'm in theater, but I really like music. It's just not a choice that I want to make for a career. And, and he said, yeah. He said, I really like music, and I am going to keep doing this. He said, I'm lucky to get this gig. He said, but really the soft rock, rock thing is not what I want to do because the fan base isn't loyal enough. I mean, this guy was ripping off the smart guy. Mm-hmm. 
fan base isn't loyal enough. I want to, I want to be 70 years old and still have a huge fan group without having to tour all the time and blah, blah, blah. At the end of that conversation, he reached his hand out and he said, oh, by the way, my name's Vince. Who's Vince Gill? <laughs> and so here I am in 1982 or whenever it was, sitting on the floor of a theater putting border strip lights together, and I'm sitting next to Vince Gill, one of the best country performers and guitar players again in a long time, just having a chat, you know? I mean, it... I think sometimes people in the arts get all caught up in what it is they're doing as opposed to what they could be talking about or what they could be doing and the the attachments that you can make just by being, as you say, in the space. Just by being in the space, um, you can you can learn a whole lot. Uh, not about you just necessarily, but about everybody and what they want to do and a lot of life lessons are learned in the theater as you already know um so yeah he was he was really a great talk and we probably sat there for 30 40 minutes just chatting away right never met him never seen him since um i'm here he's famous you know (laughs) (laughs) so what does that say well i mean it's got to be nice that these people are so down to earth you know obviously not all musicians and celebrities in general are that down to earth Right. In fact, it's probably more common than not, but it is nice yeah. when they are, you know? The best performer I ever had a chance to talk to was, who we would consider famous was Alan Rickman. Really? Yeah. We saw him and uh, a very famous British actress whose name's has escaped me, and I'm sorry. She'll have to forgive me if she ever listens to this. They were in a, a no-coward play called Private Lives, and Rickman was coming off of Potter, Harry Potter, and so he was huge and she had just won the BAFTA their Academy Award she had won the BAFTA the year before for a show that she had done in the West End in London and um, we we went to see that show as a part of a class it was a study abroad class from here and um, after the show was over we went to the stage door and she came out and she was very polite she signed some autographs and said hi and then immediately got in a taxi and took off and um we asked, the, we asked the stage manager, it's like who was out and around about the door, said, is Mr. Rickman going to come down? And she said, I don't know if he will or not, but she said, I'll go ask. And she said, who can I say is asking? Assuming that it was probably somebody he knew, right? And I said, well, would you just tell him that there are about 20 theater students here from the United States who are doing a study abroad trip? And, and they would probably just like to say hi and ask him some questions. And she said, I'll go tell him. I'll be right back. So before she came back, he came down. And he walked out. And, of course, people were, like, starstruck because this was Snape, right? I mean, this is Snape Snape. who walks out the door. Not the character from the No Coward play, which they don't know, but they know Snape, right? Yeah. So he walks out, and and he talked. It was cold. Oh, my gosh, it was so cold that night because we were there in December or January. And it was brutally, brutally cold. And he stayed out there and answered everybody's questions. I bet we were out there for 35, 30, 40 minutes. And he did not make a move to leave until every question that he, everybody who wanted to ask a question had done so. Wow, what a guy. Oh, uh, he, was, he was brilliant. I mean, just, and again, so intelligent, so smart, um, and very witty. Hmm. He was very witty. 
so yeah that was that was good um but again right place right time and don't be afraid to ask yeah i think the pretty much the only famous person i've ever i've seen i've been in close to famous people like i was maybe like 20 feet away from carrie underwood one time in a nashville preds game but um we when we went we studied abroad in ireland we saw come from away one of the actresses in it was eating breakfast right behind me i think yeah in the under the theater and she like came up and I think asked me about the class because it was like Heidi and the class were meeting over here and I was kind of leaning against this wall listening and she was like what's what's this I'm like oh it's a it's a class I'm like I'm sure they probably like to meet you she's like do you think they want to meet me or whatever I'm like yeah I'm sure so she came and talked to us I, I think but uh this is kind of back to what you were talking about is is Alan Rickman more of a stage guy or a film guy? No, he's know? more of a... He started as a theater guy. He's really a theater guy. Yeah, because it's kind of like... There's a lot of actors I've started to learn over time that are... Um, Hugh Jackman being the one that comes to mind because he's one of those guys who kind of does a lot of film stuff in order to finance and allow him to produce stage stuff. He's a song and dance man. Yeah. I mean, he literally is a musical theater geek. Mm-hmm. That's where he got to start. Um Yes, that's very common. And, and when you hear performers on TV give a soundbite of, I do movies so I can afford to do theater, mm-hmm. they're not lying. Yeah. I mean, that's really what they're doing it for. They, they, they get scale. You know, stars get scale with their own Broadway. They don't get this exorbitant salary to go do a Broadway play. Um, I guess some of them could pull that off, but most of them can't. Mm-hmm. So they're getting paid scale. And so... Yeah, they'll do a blockbuster film so then they can spend a year, 18 months living off some of that while they're doing something in New York or in the West End or who knows where, right? Yeah. Anywhere. Um, I think that's, yeah, I would say that's very commonplace. I think honestly, it's, I mean, I guess it's, it depends on what you're interested in as an actor and what your kind of motivation and purpose is. And I guess if you're more into the artistry of it, you probably will be drawn, and especially if you have a theatrical background and you didn't just immediately start with film or television, then you're probably drawn back to it, I assume. Which honestly, I mean, that would ideally be, because a lot of people ask me, and I assume every other person that does acting gets asked this, is, oh, do you want to do movies and television? I'm like, well, I want to do anything that has a paycheck involved, but at the end of the day, I, I love being on stage the most. It's mm-hmm. the most like dynamic and exciting, and you know, it's, I think it's, it's just the best form of it, obviously. I had a good conversation with one of our alums, Earl Brown, um, who Earl's been around. You may have met him when he was here doing stuff. Two times, but, yeah. Um, Earl and I have talked about that quite a bit because, well, I just like talking to Earl. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I've asked him point blank, which do you like doing better? And his response is, I don't have a better I like theater because of the immediate response you get from it, but there's nothing better than watching a really good slice of film where the the cinematographer's got it right, the director's got it right, and the actor hits it right, and the lighting's good. He said, you know, it's hard to compare. How can you like one more than the other? Um, I've never pressed him on that, so I don't know if he truly has a preference, but you know, I've, I've heard him many, many times say the skill set is the same. It's just... It's the medium that's different, but I have I have Earl say heard Earl say that he likes that 
immediate audience response. And I would assume most actors would probably prefer that. Uh, you know, Chriselle Staus, who is also an alum and has done TV. Chriselle walked into my office and said, I want to do soaps. Mm-hmm. And y'all don't do TV and film. And I said, no, we don't. But I think you'll find that the acting skill set is the same, whether you're doing it for a house of an audience in a theater or whether or not you've got a camera in front of you. You have to do the same things. So if that's what you want to do, that's what will make your goal, right? We, don't, we won't convert you to a theater performer. If you want to do TV, let's work on that. Um, she worked really hard. She had, she had an audition when she was a sophomore in St. Louis with one of the production companies that does soaps in L.A. <laughs> in New York. And they said, yeah, you're good. We're interested, but you're, we're not going to pull you away from school, so finish your degree. When you get your degree done, let us know. Um, and so that's what she did. And then, I don't know, less than a year after she graduated, I think, was when she was on All My Children. Oh, my God, that's crazy. Um, and Can't so, imagine. yeah, it was. And we had a big watch party down at the Kerr Center, you know, when, when her first her first time on was going to air. We had a big watch party and actually made some people mad because we went down to the Kerr Center and they were watching something else. And we were like... We're changing the channel. <laughs> and then when they saw we were changing it to a soap opera, I think they were really mad. Um, but, I, I, you know, Chriselle, I think, would probably say, and I'm not going to speak for her, but I think she would probably say she she likes that audience response too. And, of course, she doesn't get that much right now with what she's doing. So it wouldn't surprise me if she's not back in the theater eventually. Well, I mean... Not to sound pretentious, but I mean, from what I can understand personally, from my own experience, that you can't, that level of vulnerability is unmatched. Mm-hmm. You can't get that anywhere else. It's, it's a really incredible sensation to walk on stage, especially if you're the only person there, which it, I've been in that position a few times, um, and just have all these people looking at you and you're, you're in a position to engage they are engaging completely with you hopefully that's you know hopefully they're not on the phones or something but you know you're there to do something for them and you you, you know you have to or whatever so it's just it's such a adrenaline rush i guess because you're just kind of seemingly naked in front of all these people which i mean some actors technically are yeah. for you know equus or yeah shows that require nudity you know that force the amazing thing is that if you if I, i'm sitting here and I'm flashing through all of our alumni that I know have left here with the sole purpose of going somewhere and doing something as an actor and and choosing to pursue that and, and do it well. And I you know, I think about people like like Angie's done all television and film. I mean, I don't know that she's done a theater piece since she left here and and that's that's okay, that's good. Charles Edward Hall, who went here a long time ago before my time, but I know him, who's the Santa Claus at Radio City. Charles has also done TV and film, but there's no way that you're going to take away that live theater experience from him, right? I mean, that's, I can't imagine playing to a full house at Radio City. I'm not an actor, but I can't imagine the rush that that presents, right? I mean, oh my gosh. Um, So all these people run through, and and I sit, 
here and I think about it at home when I'm watching and, you know, somebody I know comes on TV. I'm like, their skill set is the same. The training was pretty much the same. And either it's because of opportunities they pursued or it's because of opportunities that were just presented, you know, that they just got lucky and it was just presented. And their talent is all pretty much the same. You know, I just, I just think you really have to, you really have to want it. You really have to enjoy being in this space. I keep coming back to that, but I think that's a very prudent comment from you. I, I think you have to want to be in that space. And then your head has to be in that same space too, right? Your head space has to be there. So it's whether you're a lighting designer or an actor or an administrator, you know, all of what we do is based on, I think, being in the space. You should write a book. Um, <laughs> I think it's all part of being in that space and, and finding your place in that space. And sometimes that place goes really well and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you're in the wrong place, right? Um, and you just either tough it out or you move on to the next place or whatever. But, yeah, it's um, it's it's amazing to look back on <laughs> the crazy reasons why I thought theater would maybe be an okay thing to the fact that now I do almost no theater. I haven't I haven't designed a show in years. Um, I haven't. I taught with Daryl Philippi. I taught part of a class a couple of years ago, um, but that's not the space I'm in right now. You know, it's just that's not where I am right now. Um, so uh, life is always very interesting. Yeah. Well. I'd say that's a perfect way to close it. <laughs> so anyway, thank you for being on, Dave. I really sure. appreciate it. It's been fun to talk to you. Well, it's been great talking to you. It always is.